0: During World War II, there was a company of soldiers that were given a specific objective in a French town after the D-Day invasion. And they were to study the maps and the landmarks. And they were to memorize basically the objectives that they were supposed to achieve one step at a time as they moved in to this small town in France. And as they, uh, as they began to work the plan, the plan worked flawlessly And they achieved all of their objectives. Fast forward 50, 60 years and some social social scientist or somebody decided they wanted to do an experiment. And they got a group of tourists and they gave them the same map in the same town that many of the landmarks were still there. And they gave them the same objectives, not to fight, but to move their way one step at a time through this town. And it was a horrible fiasco. So what was the difference? The soldiers' lives depended on it. The soldiers had an objective that they were willing to die for. And they listened in a different way. They followed in a different way than the tourists did. You see, they were on a journey that had a major objective to it. And every step was essential in their success. Last week, we started talking about walking in the steps of Jesus as he moves toward the cross. And I want you to understand something. This whole process, from the moment he began saying to his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer at the hands of wicked men and be killed, but he'll rise on the third day. From that moment, there was a turning point, and every step toward the cross was part of what we call the Passion. Passion means something that you were so motivated over, you're willing to suffer for it. So the passion of Jesus was more than than just the trial and the beating and the crucifixion. The passion started long before that. And last week, we picked up the passion journey of Jesus in the upper room the night that He was betrayed by Judas. Well, today I want to move to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want us to talk about lessons we need to learn. Because here's the deal. The cross of Jesus was not just an event. It was that. It was not just the purchase of our salvation. It was that. And that is of all things most important. It was also an example that we are called to follow. Say, so I'm going to die for everybody's sins in the world? No. But Jesus, and I quoted this verse last week, and most of you know it by heart. Whoever would follow me must deny himself, take up his, and follow me. Because whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I started out last week saying to you that if we want to experience abundant life, we have to walk in the steps of Jesus. Because the steps that he took were not just an event that he alone would embrace, but they were examples and a pattern for us if we intend to live the abundant life. So, he left us an example, a pattern to follow, how to take up our cross. So, let's read some scripture Matthew 26. fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it. May your will be done. Then he came back. He again, when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go from here. Or let us go, here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived with him. Arrived With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. So Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions? That's six thousand a legion. Twelve legions of angels. But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts, teaching, and you did not arrest me, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. To walk in resurrection life, we got to follow in the steps of Jesus. What steps can we see in this segment of the passion? What can we learn from this about what it means to truly follow Jesus? to follow his example, to follow his heart, to follow his will, to follow his ways. By the way, I'm going to say this again in a moment. We can't be his follower if we don't intend, firmly intend in our hearts to do like he did, live like he lived and respond to the direction of his spirit and the truth of his word. Amen. We can't be his followers. There's no special category where I can believe but not act. There's no special category. If we're going to be his follower, we're called to walk in his steps. What can we learn from him? I think the first thing we can learn from this passage is he refused to go through His crucible alone. He refused to go through the crucible. I could have put battle, test, trial. You just fill the blank in there. He refused to go through the hardest moment of his life alone. He said, stay here and keep watch with me. He took three men. He brought all the 11 that were left when Judas bailed out. He took them to the Garden of Gethsemane, which means olive press, by the way. It was probably a walled-in enclosure with olive trees, with an olive press, and and festival goers that were in Jerusalem at the time to celebrate Passover. Some scholars estimate there were as many as 100,000 festival attendees at Passover time in and around Jerusalem. There wasn't that kind of accommodations. They would literally camp out on the hills around Jerusalem, many of them. And it's very possible that Jesus and his disciples had done this. They'd stayed in Bethany, but it was a little day's journey away. But here they are in the olive press, where olives are crushed so that the oil can come out. So here they are, and he brings his disciples there, and he goes to prayer. <clears throat> but he didn't go alone. Some people sitting right here, you've attempted to live the Jesus life where nobody else can see your struggle. And I want you to know today that Jesus, Jesus allowed others into his struggle this night. For Some of you, that gives you the heebie-de-jeebies. I want anybody to know that I struggle with anything. I guess you're stronger than Jesus. Now listen, I know he was the son of God. God, very God, but he was also man, very man. And as a human being, Jesus wanted, and yes, I will say, needed human companionship on this worst night of all nights for him. I understand that most likely the thing that crushed his soul so intensely was the sin of the world on His shoulders, but can we just back up a minute and say, yes, He was Son of God, but He was also Son of Man, and that perhaps He dreaded the gruesome torture He was about to go through for about a day and a half. I mean, can we just allow that for Jesus? That He knew exactly what was coming? And he dreaded the torture and the intense pain. Listen, they beat him nearly to death before he ever got to the cross. And if we're human, we would have to say we would dread that. He allowed others into his struggle, his inner struggle. Maybe these guys had never seen him struggle before. Although if you go back through the Gospels, you're going to find out there's a couple of places where it says that Jesus was troubled. One of them was at Lazarus' tomb. He was troubled. He was grieved. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead, but he was still grieved. Maybe his disciples had seen some of this, his struggle. But this night, he invited three men. The same, by the way, three men that he brought up on the Mount of Transfiguration. The same three men that he brought into Jairus' daughter's room and they saw him raise her from the dead. The same three men. He invited them into his pain. He invited them into this moment. He invited them into this backstory of the front story of the crucifixion. I just want to tell you something. You're setting yourself up for failure if you don't let anybody in enough to see your pain and feel your struggle and support you in prayer. You're setting yourself up. This is what I tell particularly new believers. They start missing church and they start, you know, just kind of hit and miss. And and, and what I usually tell them is this. Listen, we need you and you need us. You need relationship with other believers that know you well enough and you're with them consistently enough. They can see your pain. They can see your temptation. They can see your struggle. Because we were not created nor saved to operate as spiritual lone rangers. None of us. Not me. Not you. We need each other. We need the body of Christ. But we need more than just to sit in a room on Sunday mornings. We need true relationship. So did Jesus, evidently. He not only allowed others in his struggle, but he asked for support. Knowing they would fail him. (laughs) And he still asked. He saw ahead. He knew they were going to forsake him and flee. He knew they were going to go to sleep on him. And he still wanted them there. Anybody here ever felt alone? Raise your hand. Admit it. I have felt really alone before. I think because of the task that lay in front of Jesus and because of His nature, both as fully God and fully man... He was alone in a whole new way. But part of him, the human part, wanted some other humans close by. They wanted him to see his agony. They wanted him to, them, he wanted them to feel his pain and pray for him. And he asked them to do it knowing they would fail. He asked anyway. Can I tell you something? People that we draw close to us for the purpose of fellowship and mutual strengthening in our faith they won't always come through for us. Sometimes they'll let us down. It's still worth it. Because you know what? Sometimes you'll let them down. Sometimes you won't understand. Sometimes you won't be there at the moment they need you. Sometimes, you know, you'll forget to pray when you said, I'll pray for you. Sometimes there is disappointment but evidently it was still worth it to Jesus to invite these men into his deepest, darkest moment. Just remember, just 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 before this, Jesus said, Y'all are all gonna forsake me and flee. And Peter protested, remember Peter? Oh hey, they may. You guys may bail out. I ain't bailing out. I'll go down fighting, man. He said, You're gonna, before the cock crows, you're gonna deny me three times. And at one point earlier than that, Peter pulled Jesus aside when he declared to them once again on their way to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to raise again. And Peter pulls him aside and begins to rebuke Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You have your mind on the things of man, not the things of God. This is the guy he asked to go further into the garden, further into his pain, further into his agony, further into his grief, further in to his darkest moment, Peter. Fortunately, the Holy Spirit and angels came and ministered to Jesus, it says. I think it's in Mark. And then when the time came, he surrendered the companionship That stood between him and his purpose. He let them go. And they all fled. In that moment. They were only going to stay if they could fight in the flesh. They would only stay if they could fight in the flesh. And he tells the mob that's come to arrest him. Let them go. Let them go. Don't hurt them. Let them go. The second thing that I think we can learn from this story is this. He learned to pray through. Anybody ever heard that phrase, pray through? Raise your hand. You've heard that phrase, pray through. You may not really understand what that means, but I think we see Jesus praying through in the garden in the moment of his greatest challenge. As a matter of fact, you can see a progression. The first time he goes and prays, he says, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will be done. And then the second time he goes to prayer, or the second time he quotes him praying, he says, if you can't, Let this cup pass from me. You see the transition? He's beginning to come to grips with the reality that there is no other way to please God and accomplish salvation so that he will have a bride for eternity. There's no other way except to drink the cup to the bottom. In the New Testament and Old Testament, to drink a cup meant to experience it fully. And he was going to drink the cup of suffering and anguish for our sin and shame. And he was going to drink it to the bottom. He said, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not what I will. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Can anybody relate to that? His soul was sorrowful to the point that it could just about have killed him before he ever got to the trial and the beatings and the crucifixion. He was so loaded down with grief. And I don't know, it doesn't say. He just says my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow and that's grief to the point of death. The weight of the world's sin and sorrow and shame was on his shoulders. So what does he do? He prays until something happens. Remember, push, pray until something happens. That's praying through. When you go to the throne room of God and get on your face and you say, I'm not moving until I know heaven has heard my heart. I am not backing up. I'm not letting off. I'm not going to shut up. I'm not going to give up. I am going to cling to the promises of God until I have assurance in my soul that something has happened in the spiritual realm. Pray until something happens. Sometimes that happens around us and for us. And sometimes it has to happen in us. Because you see, when Jesus was praying through, deep down inside, He knew the Father's will. What needed to happen in this moment was not the circumstance change. Something inside Him had to change. He needed courage and strength and determination and stamina and peace or whatever. He needed God to reinforce his soul. Right? So what, is, what does praying through look like in steps? First of all, counting the cost, and we see Jesus doing that. Secondly, drilling down on what really matters. As Jesus agonized in prayer, he had to focus his eyes on what mattered more than avoiding the cataclysm he was running headlong into at full speed. He had to keep his eyes on the prize. As it says in Hebrews 12, I think it's Hebrews 12, 2 or 3, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What is that joy? You. You and me. Loving Him forever. Forever. I want you to look at somebody near you and just say, you're His joy. Tell them. They need to hear it. Somebody needs to hear it today. You are His joy. You are His joy. You are His joy. You are the reason he pushed through. You are the reason he kept praying until God gave him whatever he was praying for and changed something on the inside of him so that he could push through this most horrific of moments, not just in his life, the most horrific moment in human history. And then he prepared his heart to obey. Even though God was probably going to say no. You do realize that God said no to his first prayer. Oh, it doesn't say God said no. But Jesus knew the answer. The answer, can you let this cup pass from me, was no. No. I can't let it pass from you and you fulfill your purpose. I can't. This is the way. Jesus surrendered the right to avoid pain. Don't you hear me? He surrendered the right to avoid pain so that he could accomplish his purpose. He surrendered the right to avoid pain. He chose to pray and love through the pain instead. He chose to pray and love through the pain instead of avoiding the pain moment. And He did it for you. He did it because of love. He loved the Father and He loved the world. Remember God sold the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? He didn't avoid pain because of his love. And so he loved and prayed through the pain to accomplish the purpose. You say, what's that got to do with us? None of us can love deeply and avoid all pain. Can I hear an amen? Amen. None of us can love anyone deeply and avoid all pain. Oh, there's times we can, and we would like to all the time. But if we love deeply, things hurt. It may be a hurt from the person you love failing you, or it may be hurt from the person dying. And we've got a number of widows in, in this fellowship and there's still pain there. There's still pain there. But you know what I say to many people that I'm trying to help somehow through that one of those ultimate moments of pain in somebody's life is I tell them, if you love deeply and your love is, is, is wonderful, then the pain of losing that one is all the more painful. Amen? The greater your love, the greater the pain of loss Does everybody get this equation? I mean, we've all experienced this to some degree. Now, listen, we can back up and not love people so well and not be hurt so often. There's only one problem with that it's not Jesus' way, it's not His way. It's not His way. We can avoid the pain of loving someone deeply, but it's not His way. He prayed through the pain because He loved. And we're called to do the same thing many times. I'm not saying you open yourself up to needless abuse or neglect or whatever. I'm not even going there. I'm just talking about in general as we love people. We just need to understand the cross is embedded in all of our love and compassion. There is a cross embedded in our love and compassion for people in his name. You hear what I'm saying? That means embedded in every time we try to love someone in Jesus' name, there's always the possibility it will hurt. There's always the possibility they won't love back. There's always the possibility they will betray. There's always the possibility, but I go back to last week and I remind you, he washed Judas' feet and then in the garden when they arrested him, he said, friend. He even called him friend. He drank the cup to the bottom and he said, not my will, but thine be done. And by the way, this is connected to what we call the Lord's Prayer, but it was really the disciples' prayer. Remember, our Father, He's talking to His Father in this prayer. Who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus fell on His face before Abba. He fell on His face, it says, and He cried out to His Father as a little boy appealing to His Daddy Daddy, surely you can do something. You can do anything, everything, you're all
1: powerful.
0: I remember a moment when our oldest son Michael was about four or five. He had some kind of infection, and we brought him to the doctor's office, and he had been to the doctor's office just enough to know that doctors equaled shots. Anybody relate to that? And we brought him in and they they checked him out and decided, guess what? He needed a shot. And I'm telling you, I had to hold my five-year-old down on a table, screaming and kicking and terrified while they jabbed the needle right in the top of his leg right here. It was the only place they could get to. It hurt me more than it hurt him. I can promise you. And that story came to my mind today when I realized Jesus had laid down at the feet of His Father. And He was saying, Father, isn't there any other way? But if not, I've spent my life doing what I see you do and saying what I hear you say. And if this is the only way I'm in, I'll drink this thing to the bottom of the cup. He made a decision even though God's answer was no. What do you do when God says no? I heard a sermon on this this week and it's the first sermon I think I've ever heard in my life on what do you do when God says no? Because sometimes He does. Sometimes He says no. I'm just going to say this and move on. The only response of a real disciple to God's no is yes, Lord. So be it. In other words, to yield and say, I surrender to your no. Because your no is better than my yes. Your no is always the best. Your no is always the right timing, the right method, the right path, the right everything. Your no is always perfect even though it feels like a, a slow death maybe to me does my heart say yes Lord yes I will trust you and obey I'll say yes Lord yes even to his no I'll say yes the third thing and this is the final thing He surrendered the right to fight back or run. You heard what we read earlier. Let me just read it again for you. Starting at verse 52. Put your sword back in its place. This this is after Peter pulls the sword out and goes on the attack. Rather clumsily. And by the way, they were way outnumbered and Jesus told him to put his sword back for a number of reasons. But one of them was so that they wouldn't slaughter all these disciples because it would not have been a good battle. They were outgunned except for this one fact. Jesus reminded them. He was obviously in total control. He reminded them, I can call 12 legions of angels and basically wipe you guys out. But I won't. But let these guys go. Let these guys go. <clears throat> Jesus surrendered his right to fight back in this moment, and he also surrendered his right to run away from the impending events. This is not a blanket, um, some kind of blanket statement for passivism, okay? This doesn't mean there's never a right time to fight back. You see, for Jesus to fight back in this moment would have been the most selfish act that he could have done. Because it would have become about his suffering and not about our salvation. You hear what I'm saying? He refused to fight back particularly for selfish motives. He refused. He refused to defend himself. He could have, but he just laid it down. He couldn't accomplish his purpose and fight back. Okay? He could not accomplish his purpose and fight back. He refused to let his disciples fight back. And when Peter and the other guys saw that they couldn't use weapons of the flesh to protect them in Jesus, what'd they do? Like a covey of quail. Gone. We wrestle not against flesh and blood we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our weapons are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds, but we're not talking about guns and knives and swords and and nuclear weapons. We're talking about the weapons of the Holy Spirit. The battles that we are to never shrink from are spiritual battles. What does this mean practically? It probably means that we don't make enemies out of people who have made themselves enemies to us. We don't respond in like kind. Somebody says something damaging about us, that doesn't mean we go and say something damaging about them. Right? Somebody does us wrong, it doesn't mean we find... What is it? I don't get... What is it? I don't get back, I get even. That's probably not the best way to say it, but you know what I'm talking about. That's not the way Jesus rolls. He'll take care of judgment in the end, right? He will judge the final judgment in the end. Every man will give an account and he'll he'll make the accounts right in the end. But he said, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. You don't take vengeance. And I believe that's what we're talking about here. Jesus refused to fight with fleshly weapons For many reasons, one, it wasn't his way in general, but two, it would have aborted his purpose in the moment. You know what? There's times you can defend yourself and you won the battle, but you lose the war. Why? Because beware when you fight dragons, lest you become one. Sometimes when we decide we're going to fight back and defend ourselves, we become just like the people who attacked us. And Jesus has called us to follow him and not respond in like kind, but be willing to let that right go and fight with spiritual weapons. It wasn't just fighting. It was also running. He could not accomplish his purpose and run away. Do you not think that Jesus knew that Judas was about to bring this mob down there to get him that night? He could have pulled a, a little trick on him, right? He could have showed up at Bethany instead of at Gethsemane. He could have avoided the crushing. But he chose not to. And we've already talked about avoiding pain for the purpose, for the sake of the purpose. He gave up the right to run. He gave it up because he could not accomplish his purpose and run away from pain, from pressure, or from trouble. This doesn't mean that we're, we're not wise if we avoid some things. That's not what I'm talking about. Proverbs makes it really clear. If you know there's trouble coming, you take preventative measures, right? It's not unbiblical to take preventative measures. It's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about avoiding all pain or pressure or trouble at the expense of our testimony, of our ministry, of impact for the gospel, and of loving people. Even people that may be the source of our trouble. We're called to surrender our right to avoid pain when purpose and love are at stake. I mean, I just I want to just say something to you. I know these messages are not rah-rah messages. But you know what my heart says? My heart says I want every one of us to be prepared to follow Jesus faithfully no matter what comes down the road. And I think everyone here that is aware of what the trends in our culture and the trends in our society, I think every one of us understand it very likely will get increasingly difficult to faithfully follow Jesus in the circumstances we're living in. And before God, I feel a responsibility to tell you the truth. About following Jesus. This is not a picnic. This is not for sissies as they say about getting old. But following Jesus sure ain't for sissies. And I would be delinquent in my duty before God not to let you know following Jesus is costly. And I would also be delinquent in my duty not to remind you it's worth any cost. It's worth any cost. I've always been enamored with missionaries or believers in a restricted country somewhere that stood their ground for the sake of Jesus and paid for it with ultimate sacrifice. I've always admired them, but and, and I'll be honest with you, one reason is is cuz I wonder if I could do that. I'm just being honest. Is magnifying Jesus worth even death? This ain't a game. This is not a game. This is not a religious exercise. That's not what this is. This is real. There's real cost. Oh, I know your salvation didn't cost you anything, but to follow Jesus, it cost you something. To walk in his steps and to experience the abundant life he paid for with his own blood on that cross, to experience that fullness of life and joy and peace and purpose and impact, to experience that. There'll be some things you gotta let go of. There may be some people you got to let go of. There may be, there may be moments when you're going to get some pushback. I believe it's my responsibility before God to do everything I can to strengthen your and my commitment to follow Jesus. Follow in his footsteps. Do what he would do. WWJD, it's not a bracelet. It's a call of the Holy Spirit to the people of God. Am I willing to respond to life according to the pattern that Jesus left me? Am I willing to take my cross up? Oh, that's a bummer, Pastor. Oh, let's think happy thoughts. This is a happy thought because the result of what he did was eternal, awesome, abundant life forever. You know what the world needs more than they need not they, they don't need another church service. They sure don't need another sermon. What they really need is from me and you to walk in the steps of Jesus out there, out there. And I'll tell you this, I'm praying for revival, but you know what revival would look like to me? Everybody in this house, overwhelmed and captured by the beauty of Jesus to the point that we are willing to share that outside these walls at cost. At cost. That would be revival. That would be revival. This is my prayer. Open our eyes, Jesus. Help us see the just unparalleled worth that you are. And that to walk closely with you is the greatest treasure a human being could experience. And that it's worth whatever it might cost to hold on to your hand, your nail scarred hand, and to walk in your steps. And to see you act through my life and speak through my mouth and love through my heart and impact my surroundings with your spirit. Help me see your worth. Give me a new glimpse of your majesty and glory and goodness. Give me a new glimpse of your beauty. Give me a new glimpse of your wisdom. And your goodness and your kindness and your power and your authority. Give me a new glimpse of your purpose. Give me a new glimpse, Holy Spirit. You know, the disciples were, began to be sorrowful that same night when He said, somebody's going to betray me. They began to be sorrowful. But about three days later, all sorrow had fled away. Amen? Amen? Because they they experienced the purpose for the pain. And it was life and life more abundantly. You are worth it, Lord Jesus. You are worth whatever it costs me to follow you faithfully, closely, joyfully with my whole being. Loving Jesus, Lord, is more than a vision statement to this fellowship. We desire to love you with our lives. Help us go there. Help us go there so that we can connect people to you and to one another so that we can share the hope of the resurrection that is on the other side. Help us. I want you to stand with me. If if someone here today you've not ever surrendered your heart to Christ. And today you realize, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I, I, I'm not sure I would stand in front of Jesus if I were to die today and hear Him say, well done, good and faithful, sir. I, I'm not sure. I just don't know where I'd go if I were to die after I left here today. If that's you and in your heart you think, I want, to follow Jesus with my whole being and I'm not sure I've even asked him to forgive my sin and come and dwell in me by his spirit. I want to be born again to a living hope. I want my sins washed away. I want a relationship with Jesus. I've not done that yet, but I want that. Anybody, I'm looking. Anybody, anybody. Okay. I want us to sing I have decided to follow Jesus.
1: No turning back No turning back Though none go with me Still I will follow Though none go with me Still I will follow Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me.
0: I want you to lay your hands on your eyes and just pray the Holy Spirit would give you eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. That He would give you eyes to see the unparalleled worth and awesomeness of our Savior. That you would see Him for the treasure, the all-encompassing beauty that He is. And that your heart would be drawn. And that you would count the cost and say, he's worth it, whatever the cost. He's worth it to follow him closely, to hear his voice, to be used by his spirit, to impact those around, to experience the joy of sins forgiven, the peace that passes understanding, the abundant life that comes in His trail, in His footsteps. God, do this in us. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you with an ever-growing, wholehearted love for Him. May He connect you with other people that will help you on your journey or you can help on their journey. And may you be empowered to share hope Be a hope dealer this week in Jesus' name. Amen.